first order of business this week is to thank you. Last week was the most downloads since the first week, so please keep sharing the podcast. I know some of the stories are tough, and yet there are way more rainbows than purple rain. My heartfelt thank you. In this episode, my schedule gets pretty full and my adjustment to the Air Force is going well. In addition, I get surprise visitors and start my own dairy goat herd in Nevada. Finally, as a listener warning, this episode has content that some will find troubling. This event completely changed the trajectory of my career and in some ways my life. I hadn't been at Nellis very long before I did a little research in the area about dairy goat farms, and I guess it was more out of curiosity. I shared this with Mom, and she also did some research. There was a substantial dairy goat farm in Overton, Nevada. That wasn't very close. It was about 90 minutes away. Early on, I got in touch with them and met Ed and Jan Wagley. They were very kind people, and before I had wheels, they would come pick me up for weekends out at the farm. Mom and Jan became pen pals. Anyway, in hindsight, I wonder if it was more to keep an eye on me. And nonetheless, they did become very good friends. Anyway, there was some discussion about having a dairy go at their farm, so I went ahead and registered a farm name, Just Sue. I also needed a herd name to be involved as an adult leader in the 4-H program. I never did have an animal at the farm in Nevada. However, there are two dairy goats with Prodigy under the Just Sue herd name, both kept at Ragochi Bend from my own other dairy goat, Prodigy. I also got involved with the 4-H in Nevada and had the honor of being a judge at one of the county fairs. Back to the Wagleys, they had three children and were devout Mormons. I learned a lot about their religion, and it was enlightening. In fact, after Howard Hughes died, the Mormon church was tied up in litigation on possession of the farm, and since Ed was so well connected in the church, I got a tour of the old estate. It was amazing. The two things I remember most was, one of the showers was fed from a warm natural spring, and... Under the cover between the garage and the house were two very large round columns. Inside those columns were bathrooms that guests had to use when visiting. Well, we all know he was somewhat eccentric. Many weekends were spent with them even after getting my car. Most of the time they insisted on picking me up because they didn't want me driving the long trip by myself. Ed worked just outside Las Vegas often, so that seemed reasonable. One day, Mom called me and told me they were thinking about coming out to visit me. I didn't get home very often because it was very expensive to fly and I was working. So the first thought was, is Mom really going to fly? Well, guess what? Mom and Dad did come to Las Vegas to visit. And we also met the Wagleys as well. I got permission for them to stay on the base at the base lodging, so that made everything very convenient. It was quite a trip. Mom and Dad weren't into the glitz of Las Vegas, so we spent some time out in Overton and did some of the sites in Vegas not tied to gambling. That my parents came to visit me was very special. The days were filled and the time went by pretty fast. One of the funniest experiences was when Jane was driving us around in their car, 
Mom mentioned that she wanted to see something that we had just passed. Jan slammed on the brakes and did a U-turn right along the side of the, of the shoulders, and it was out in the country, so it was, it was a rather funny situation. Mom braced herself, and her eyes were wide open. She couldn't believe what had just happened. Jan was spontaneous and fun, and she and Mom fit in together really well because they both had a curious sense of humor. Mom talked about that ride for years later when we talked about the trip with the Wagglies. The one thing I did was I wanted to treat the Wagglies and my parents at a steakhouse at the top of the Landmark Hotel just before they left. At the time, well, even probably now, it was pretty expensive for a young airman, and I didn't know that it was a set-price menu. My mom was very self-conscious about eating in public, so she only had a salad. When I got the bill, I mentioned to the waiter that my mom only had a salad. He said, oh, it's a fixed price. I said, then we'll take the steak to go. A new lesson in life. As you can imagine, I will never forget the treat that my parents gave me by coming to visit me. It was the only flight that mom ever took. Back at work, I was doing my best in both learning my job and preparing meals for the customers. I was also learning the paperwork associated with both menu planning to the accounting aspects of the dining facility. There was so much to learn. In addition, we had to take time away from the dining facility to train for our wartime mission with Red Horse. Last week, I mentioned that Red Horse was the first to go into a potential war environment to build a rapid runway in Tent City as well as other structures. It was the food service personnel's job to set up a field kitchen and prepare meals for the troops. Of course, that makes sense. It's not an easy task. There are two aspects of building a field kitchen that are extremely dangerous. The first are the ranges that are used. They are gas-powered stoves that are used to cook everything from baking to meals to making coffee. They operate with pressure in the tanks, and that's the dangerous part. The second were the washing stations that were used called immersion heaters. They were also gas-powered and very difficult to manage. These were submerged in part into a large galvanized container to heat the water to a temperature appropriate to wash and rinse pots, pans, and utensils. I did learn how to do it but I didn't like it. Luckily, one of my fellow cooks liked to operate them, and so he took that over more often than not. I was pretty glad that I didn't have to do that. I knew that if I had to do it, I was certainly capable of doing it. These experiences would come to be a positive experience later in my career, as you'll learn as we move decades forward. We had exercises at different times, some were quarterly, some semi-annually, and some just once a year, depending on the training mission needs. In addition, even if a small contingent had to go out for training, sometimes food service personnel had to go along because no food, no mission. It was perhaps the best lesson for a young airman that every job in the Air Force is important. While at the dining facility, it may not seem as important because people don't eat all their meals there. But when deployed, whether an exercise or a real-world situation, feeding the troops, be hot meals or prepackaged meals called MREs, it was important.
At the time, I remember that the Air Force standard was that we had to have full-blown hot meals by day two of the exercise. There was one trip that I remember specifically that we were driving out to this one of the training sites, and since we were support personnel, we had to kind of hitch a ride by riding shotgun in one of the heavy equipment-operated vehicles. The reason that we had to be out there in the early part so we could feed the first people that arrived on site. The driver of the vehicle that I was assigned to asked me if, he, if I minded if he smoked. He outranked me, and since it was in Nevada, the windows were down, there was no air conditioning in those kind of vehicles due to the heat, so it seemed okay. Plus, remember, smoking was done in buildings back then. Well, he pulled out a pack of cigarettes and pulled one from the little compartment in the bottom. I was not sure what he was doing. Well, guess what? It was pot. I was freaking out. Thankfully, he suspected that I was uncomfortable and he didn't smoke it for very long. Once I had my car, I decided that I wanted to get a part-time job since I had all these new expenses. Back then, you had to get permission to get a part-time job from your supervisor to make sure it was a job that would be appropriate as an Air Force member. Since I was in food service, it seemed likely that I would look for a job in a food service establishment. I got a job at Pizza Hut. Starting at Pizza Hut way back then, I would eventually work in five or six huts over my time in the Air Force, both at Nellis and my next base. I enjoyed working at Pizza Hut. Like any job, there are life lessons to be learned. At first, I didn't work too many hours because of my Air Force obligations. The Pizza Hut I worked at was next to the Showboat Casino. I learned that the Showboat closed in 2004. It was really famous back then for all the bowling tournaments that they hosted. Anyway, since it was next door on weekends, I would go in early and did a little gambling before work. At this point, I was just playing slot machines, and it was kind of fun. More about my gambling a little bit later. So my time seemed to be filling up. Of course, the Air Force was my first priority. I had, part -time, I had my part-time job and started taking courses at LaSalle Extension Institute, and I took a course at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. I was also spending time with the Wagleys at their farm, although once I got the part-time job, my visits did reduce significantly. It seemed that I was settled into my life in the Air Force, and it was going well. I was recognized by letters of commanders and awards, and named Airman of the Quarter several times, and my hard work was definitely paying off. Then, in late 1978, an event happened that changed my life, perhaps even to today. My room was the furthest from the latrine where the showers, sinks, and toilets were. One evening, I went to take a shower. I got into the shower, and instead of normal water coming out of the shower head, scalding hot water came out. I froze, and then I jumped out of the shower, and I ran out. I could hear voices saying, we got him, we did it, and sadly, some racial slurs. I raced back to my room. I was scared, and I was in pain. There was one thing I knew. If I disclosed this to my supervisor, the next time, it might be worse. I didn't know what to do. My roommate was away at the time, and I didn't know how to even treat my wounds or how bad I was because I couldn't see behind me. 
The next day, I had to go to work. I could barely put on clothes, but I had to go to work. Somehow, I managed to get on a uniform and was obviously in pain because my clothes were rubbing up against these burns. Since we had a medic in the squadron, my supervisor sent me to see him. I, I had to go. The medic examined me and said, what happened? All I said was, I must have had hot water too high in the shower. He called in the commander and the officer in my chain of command. I truly did not want to say more. I was treated and taken to the hospital on the main base. I had first and second degree burns over 40% of my body. I was taken to the commander's office on my return with bandages over my body. And this confused me because I didn't do anything wrong. The office was fairly full of all kinds of people. Some were in blues, so I knew they were from the main base since we wore fatigues as our duty uniform. The commander apparently worked pretty fast. By the time I was released, which was, I can't remember exactly, but it was at least three hours, they were already started an inquiry as to what happened and who was involved. Since Red Horse had plumbers in the unit, it was a logical starting point in figuring out who was likely involved. And while it was just a couple of squadron mates, it was a race-based assault and others seemed to cheer it on. All this was happening very fast. I was given one of three options. I could be discharged honorably from the Air Force. I could be reassigned to any base in the Air Force of my choice. Or I could stay at Red Horse, but I would have to move off base and work, at one, work in one of the sections in the headquarters building. I didn't know what to do. Still so new in the Air Force, and without a defined worldview, it was Master Sergeant Miller, who was a senior member of the squadron, who asked if he and I could talk separately. I knew who he was, although not personally. He was very empathetic, and we chatted for quite a while. I told him I didn't want to get out of the Air Force since I really had just started. I had experienced racial bias in high school, and while this was worse, I wasn't going to run. I also like doing my job. He posed an option. He said that I couldn't work in the dining facility any longer because he didn't think it would be safe since I worked shift hours with unusual hours. He offered me a job in logistics planning and said that I could stay with his family until I found a place to live off base. While I didn't know, I still didn't quite know what to do, I really wanted to call my mom to get her advice. I didn't do that because I felt telling her afterwards would be better because it wouldn't be fair to tell her in the moment. Since Sergeant Miller seemed genuine and saw this as my chance to look forward, we went back to the commander and I said I decided to stay at Red Horse and move off base. I remember the commander offered to allow me to go to any base I wanted, which led me to believe that he thought that might have been the better option. I said that I felt that running away from the problem was worse. Since I was not to go back to the dorm under any circumstance, I later learned that the first sergeant already was supervising packing my stuff from the dorm. Sergeant Miller and Lieutenant Brinkley helped me get my stuff to the Miller home. I didn't know how I was going to really do this once I was 
uh, done with staying at the Miller's because I didn't have a lot of money, although I did have my job at Pizza Hut, and that would help. Sergeant Miller's wife was very kind, and they also had two young children. Before I could go back to work, I was given a couple weeks for my injuries to heal. Sergeant Miller told me that he really didn't want me to look for a place to live until after I had healed and just do that first. Remember, there was no Google, so I couldn't do much research before that anyway. While I stayed at the Millers, I did have time to rethink my decision and decided it was the right one. I still do. It was worse, of course, than high school, because then I didn't encounter any real physical harm. A little shoving, pushing my books, and taunting. This was far worse. Once again, I wish I wasn't Asian. I would look in the mirror and squish my face to see what it would look like if I was white. I felt less than and wondered if my life would always be in some amount of danger. When things happened like this in my life, I would often think about my start to life. Was I saved those years ago just to experience a life like this? I, I didn't know. This event changed my life in many ways. It was then that I took the attitude and adopted the saying that I had to dust myself off and keep going. It was also then that I became far more cautious with people, all kinds of people and all kinds of relationships. I also decided I would focus on being the best, I would work harder and accomplish more. I would learn decades later that it is likely a thread of my eventual diagnosis of PTSD emanating from this event. While I stayed at the Millers, my body was healing well and I was getting pretty restless just hanging out at the house. My car was parked just outside and so one day I decided to go out and wash it. About the time I was almost done, Sergeant Miller pulled up coming home from work. For several months of the year, due to the heat, the squadron worked early in the morning. I think we started at 5 a.m. and finished at 2 p.m. So I was out there finishing up my car, and he walked up to me and saw that I was bleeding through my bandage. Of course, I couldn't see it. I knew it was hot and uncomfortable, but I just figured it was just the heat. He didn't really scold me, but he did have me go inside. Once my convalescence was over, I would go back to work for Sergeant Miller in the logistics planning in the main squadron building. This new job was very interesting, and one of my main responsibilities was to establish checklists for preparation for our wartime mission, as well as figure out the most efficient ways to load aircraft with our heavy equipment for deployment. It was something that I had no knowledge about or experience, yet I did learn quickly, and I'll go more into that uh, a bit later. I also went back to work at Pizza Hut, and one of the guys from the squadron heard that I was looking for options to live off base. He was a buck sergeant, and I have a feeling that Sergeant Miller may have vetted him because I didn't know him at all. Anyway, he lived in a mobile home across from the main gate at Nellis. The mobile home had two bedrooms, so it would be fairly close to the base and in a price range that I could afford. So, after about two or so months with the Millers, I moved. Since I hadn't been in the Air Force that long, I didn't have a lot of stuff, and the spare room was furnished, so it actually made things work out in my situation. Bob was an older guy who kept to himself and was pretty much a homebody. 
We shared the responsibilities, although I often made the meals, which made sense. He was also often on temporary duty, or TDY, on Red Horse projects. For much of the squadron, a heavy TDY schedule was typical, so I had the place to myself about half the time. It worked out really well. There was a lot I missed about living on base, and yet I really liked my new job a lot, and working with more senior people in the squadron gave me, a bigger, gave me bigger responsibilities and a broader view of the mission of the Air Force. About this time, since I lived off base, I decided that I would venture more into the city. When I lived in the dorm, I pretty much kept to Area 2 and the main base of Nellis. Remember, I hadn't been driving very long and was also getting more comfortable with that. Speaking of which, there was a Phillips 66 station just down from my house that became the place I got gas and had the car serviced. I also got to know the folks there pretty well. Well, one day I had a flat tire. Not really thinking, I called the garage and the guy quickly just said, why are you calling me? And I said, oh, I need to have a flat tire. And he said, well, just change it. And I said, oh, oh, snap. <laughs> I learned that in driver ed. So it was embarrassing, but also a learning experience. Ah, Vegas. Shows and gambling and, well, gambling and shows. Shows were expensive, so I decided to try my hand at gambling. I was smart enough to know that I shouldn't gamble at tables until I learned more about the games, which is why I stuck to the slot machines early on. For example, playing blackjack for fun and playing for money are two very different things. I would go to the Desert Inn and watch people play. I went to the Desert Inn because, at the time, the casino played all the cards face up, so I could watch people play and try to figure out why they would take a card or not take a card. I also knew to watch how people played based on where they sat on the table. I would do this hours on end. And since I wasn't quite 21, when I did play, I would, have, I would bring back the silver dollars from slot machines or chips from tables, and my roommate would go cash them in for me. It worked out very nicely. If you were caught gambling underage, they would confiscate the money you're trying to cash in, regardless of what you might have started with. Well, by chance, the first time I was carded was at a blackjack table on my 21st birthday. So my system seemed to work. I don't suggest that people do that. It is illegal. It is important to remember, though, that they don't build new casinos on what you win. I'm ending this episode with a perspective more than 40 years after what happened on that fateful day in the dorm. I'm not the only person who has faced the kinds of adversity that I've shared. Many have faced worse. Yes, it's hard to get up and dust yourself off, and sometimes it seems impossible. The biggest challenge is that if you don't, Anger, and even rage, may overtake your world. My perspective is that if you let others determine your outlook on life, they win. You get to win too. I think that being an Asian American has even more unique challenges because there is a strong perception of Asian people, especially over the period when the Asian American population grew to what it is today. And while this is true for other groups, 
Why this is perpetuated is rooted in both events in history and the lack of inclusion in federal law that I mentioned in an earlier episode. It's also rooted in the improper moniker as the, quote, model minority, unquote. Today, I am proud of my heritage, and I'm glad that the nation has moved beyond what it was like for me growing up as a young adult. I'm very aware that young Asian American children and adults still face both overt and less overt prejudice. We sometimes feel like the blue tomato from my poem earlier, and we tend to have a lot of purple rain. Being unique is okay, and my advice is keep the umbrella handy. The purple rain will stop, and the rainbow will come out. Be strong. I'm dedicating this episode to Master Sergeant Miller. He not only gave me safe haven, he was an amazing supervisor to work for. He gave me opportunities that I would never have otherwise had, and most of all, he became my first mentor in the Air Force, and my success has a direct link to what he did on that fateful day. The next episode will share some unique experiences at Pizza Hut and the world of logistics planning with a decision that was made that changed how Red Horse did exercises going forward. Come back for the short take on Sunday, where we were also continuing exploring amazing Australia. The Boy in the Trash Can podcast is a production of CSJ Associates.